Our story opens with 12 brothers. That's right, 12. Their dad is Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. You know, the father Abraham had many sons. That guy. Anyway, number 11 out of Jacob's 12 sons, this dude, his name is Joseph. Now, for all you moms and dads out there, I know you don't have favorites, but Jacob does. He loves Joseph the most, and everybody knows it. He even gives Joseph this flashy, colorful coat just to rub it in all their faces. Well, that ticks off the other brothers enough that they start planning to kill Joseph. Yikes! They are dead set on showing their pipe-dreaming brother he's not as special as everyone says. Certainly not special enough to fulfill whatever fancy purpose he thinks God's calling him to. Then Joseph's brothers decide, hey, you know what'll really teach that little punk a lesson? If we sell him into slavery. And so Joseph gets hauled off to Egypt. At this point, you gotta wonder if Joseph thinks any other surprises might be coming his way. I mean, what else could possibly go wrong? Yeah, about that. Joseph becomes a servant in the house of a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of some pretty risque stuff. So Joseph ends up in prison. Looks like Joseph's situation has gone from bad to worse. You certainly couldn't blame Joseph for feeling forgotten or like there's no way God could still use him to do anything important. But thankfully, Joseph knows God, and God has something special in store. While Joseph's in jail, he gets on the Pharaoh's good side. So Pharaoh sets him free and basically makes him his right-hand man. That's when Egypt starts going through a famine. And guess who comes to buy food? Joseph's brothers who had it out for him. Now, Joseph could easily get his revenge, but he ends up giving his brothers food, forgiveness, and he ultimately saves his entire family. Turns out God did have a big purpose for Joseph's life, even in the midst of some seriously terrible stuff happening. Just listen to what Joseph tells his brothers. You guys planned all this for evil, but God planned it for good, to save people's lives. And that's the same promise God makes all of us today. He will use our stories for good when we begin finding purpose in uncertainty. Well, welcome everybody to the weekend. And before we jump into the message, I have two great resources I want to alert you about. I spoke to you about one last weekend, and it is called wooddale.org slash Passover. If you would like to experience the Passover this coming week on Thursday night, we're going to have a virtual Passover led by uh, Trevor Rubenstein of Chosen People Ministry. All the instructions, what you're going to need to be ready for that can be found if you go to this uh, Earl that you see up here. So check it out and uh, make sure you get your SVP so that you're set to join us in that virtual Passover experience. I think you, your family will really enjoy it as you go through what Jesus celebrated with his disciples and the depth of its meaning be explained by a Messianic Jew. So make sure you do that. Secondly, if you want more information on the book of Exodus, the actual Exodus itself, we have a resident expert here at Wooddale Church, and his name is Tim Mahoney. He's got a great uh, website. He's made some fantastic documentaries. Just go to PatternsofEvidence.com, PatternsofEvidence.com, and you'll be able to get a hold of all that information. Hope you will do that. Let's jump into the message. The word that came to my mind this weekend when I was thinking about what we were going to study is the word vindication. There's just something wonderful about when you are vindicated, right? And, and all the adversity you've gone through, 
is worthwhile because you've passed the test and, and you were right all along, so to speak. Our, our friend Joseph has gone from being in a pit to a slave in a household to a prisoner in a dungeon to now being the prime minister of Egypt. He is Pharaoh's vizier. That is, he is like second in command of the most powerful nation on earth. And you just kind of want to applaud and go, yes, the hero won through all that adversity. He's been vindicated. He's been proven. And he finally rises to the top. Well, the question now becomes, how is his family going to get to Egypt? How is God going to pull that off? Because only God could bring Joseph from the pit to the prime minister. How is God going to get Jacob and his family into Egypt? Well, the famine that struck the land had been uh, so devastating that it, it made its way all the way up to Canaan, where Jacob and his sons lived. And it was so bad that they were literally facing a situation of starvation. And Jacob looks at his sons, and he says this to them in Genesis 42. He says, why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. Now, you know, when I read that and I hear him saying to his sons, why are you standing around looking at each other? It just kind of reminds you of how unhealthy that whole relationship was between the sons and the father. So he tells the boys to go down to Egypt. These are grown men, obviously. And uh, he keeps Benjamin back, however, because he doesn't trust them to bring his youngest son, Joseph's full-blooded brother, Benjamin, safely back again. Jacob still has a huge ache in his heart over the loss of his favored son, Joseph. And so the other guys go into Egypt. And when they show up in Egypt, who do you think is the first person, the first official that they meet? Providentially, it happens to be Joseph. But they don't recognize Joseph at all. You can understand why. The last time they saw Joseph, he was about 17 years old. Now he's a man of 30 years of age. And he looks Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. And in fact, He's speaking Egyptian to them, which requires a translator. He hasn't forgotten his Hebrew, but he recognizes them. And he doesn't want to give himself away yet. So they don't know who he is, but he sure knows who they are. And as they're bowing in front of him, he must have remembered those words he once spoke to them. He remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. Remember when he told them the dreams about how the sun, the moon, and the stars would bow before him, how their stalks of grain would bow before his stalks of grain? Hey, it's all coming to pass now. There they are bowing before him. And Joseph gets kind of tough with them. He accuses them of spying in the land, trying to check out the land and take advantage of the crops and the grain, I should say the grain that's available. And, and they try to explain to him that they're not spies. And he interrogates them and he finds out about their father. He finds out about their younger brother. And then he throws them in jail. So for three days, the brothers are in prison, probably wondering what on earth is going to happen to us. He pulls them back out of the dungeon. They're standing in front of him. And he says, you know, I'm a God-fearing man. And because of that, 
uh, I'm not going to keep you all in jail. I'm only going to keep one of you. And he chooses Simeon. He said, he's going to stay in prison. I'm going to send the rest of you home with your grain sacks full. And if you produce that younger brother that you say you have in front of my eyes, then I'll know you're not spies and I'll give you Simeon, your brother, back. So Simeon goes back to the dungeon. These guys go home. But before they go home, they're speaking Hebrew to each other. And Joseph can overhear what they're saying. Now listen to what they say. Clearly, we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. Can you imagine how Joseph felt when he heard those words? We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life. So now we get some insight to what it was like when they threw him in the pit. He's begging for his life. And he says, we saw the anguish in his face. But we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. In other words, you know, God's, God's getting even with us. God's punishing us now for what we did. And you almost sense uh, some remorse in their, their voice and in, in, in what they're saying, what they're communicating. Well, they go home and uh, we're not told how long they're home, but eventually the grain runs out. And uh, Judah speaks up. And remember, Judah's the one that wanted to have Joseph killed before they decided just to sell him out of the pit. And he says, we've got to go back. And he says, you've got to give us Benjamin or we're not going to get Simeon back. We're not going to get any grain back. And Jacob doesn't want to let go of Benjamin, but finally he's talked into it. And they bring Benjamin there to Egypt. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, you can imagine the emotions that are going on. And I hope you read chapters 42 through 45 because I can't read it all for you. But you can imagine the emotions that are going th- that's going through Joseph's mind and heart when he sees Benjamin. He's gladdened inside. He's, he's aching inside, but he, he controls himself. There's several times, about three times in those chapters, where he has to excuse himself because he's so emotional and he weeps. Then he comes back, okay, he's got it all together, maybe he threw some cold water on his face. And uh, he brings Simeon out and he says, okay, I believe you now. Here's your brother, you guys can go. We'll fill your sacks full of grain. But he tells one of his assistants to sneakily take his favorite silver cup and hide it in Benjamin's bag. Then before the guys can barely get out of town, Joseph's officials are supposed to go after them pull a traffic stop, so to speak, and accuse them of stealing Joseph's silver cup. And then they're going to search through the bags and uh, they're going to find it in Benjamin's bags. There's going to be trouble. So the, the guys head out. Joseph's officials pull up, pull them over, stop them, and, and accuse one of them of having stolen Joseph's silver cup. Now, he doesn't know who. He says, one of you did it. One of you had to have done it. And these guys are flabbergasted by by what they hear. And look how they respond. They say, what are you talking about? We are your servants that would never do such a thing. If you find this cup with any one of us, let that man die. And all the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. And so he says, "That's, that's okay. That sounds like a good deal. And he goes searching through the bags. Can you imagine how horrified, how absolutely horrified the brothers were when all of a sudden Benjamin's bag is opened up and there's a silver cup. So they come back and they fall on their faces in front of Joseph. 
and they're just heartbroken. And they say, well, be your slaves, but, but let, let the young man, you know, let him go home at least. Joseph says, no, I'm keeping him. He's the one that's guilty. You guys go home. And Judah speaks up. Now, remember, this is Judah who at one time wanted Joseph dead. Now listen to how he talks to Joseph, doesn't know it's Joseph yet, about what's going to happen to their father. Listen. He says, and now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. Okay, so what happened is Jacob transfers that affection he had for Joseph. Now it's totally transferred to Benjamin. And the, and the, and the brothers see that. I mean, the, Jacob is just a really bad father, okay? He says, our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We as servants will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. My Lord, he says, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here. Let me be a substitute as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Isn't it interesting that he didn't feel that way when it was Joseph? But now with everything that's happened, he says, I can't bear the anguish of seeing what my father will do and how he'll feel if Benjamin doesn't come home. And this whole thing overwhelms Joseph. He cannot take it anymore. And finally, he reveals himself to his brothers. And I just want to read it to you. It's a long passage. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. So at home, grab your Bibles if you want to follow along or wherever you are at our campuses, just listen. This is Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. It says, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them, who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly, the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? <laughs> but his brothers were speechless, I can imagine. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came close to him. He said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to, to preserve your lives. Now I'm going to deal with that more in an upcoming message. Back to verse 6. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there'll be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and, and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. And so this raises a question. And the question is, what does this story mean? I mean, it's, it's a great story to read about what happened back then. But what does this story mean for you and me? Why is it included in the Bible besides just giving us a history of Israel and, and how it all leads up 
to what God accomplishes in the New Testament. What does this mean for your life and my life? What does it mean for the times that you're living in and I'm living in? Well, I want to suggest this principle to you. And it goes like this. And that is that behind all that is going on in your life or my life, behind all that is going on in your life, you can be assured that God is doing something to make you great in his sight. Go ahead and jot that down. Own that. Pray that. Believe that. Behind everything that's going on in your life right now, good and bad, easy and hard, joyful and sorrowful, behind all of that, God is doing something to make you great. And here's the key. Not greatness in my sight, but make you great in his sight. So what is that great thing that God is doing? Well, all we have to do is kind of go back and, and look at Joseph's life and see what God's doing in his life and in his brother's lives and in his father's life. Can I just be honest with you? If you go back and read that story carefully, one thing that's, that's just profound is just what an awful dad Jacob was. He was a terrible, terrible father. He ruined his family. He ruined the life of his son Joseph by favoring him. And he ruined the life of Joseph's brothers by, by creating contention between them and Joseph that led to this whole debacle, which God still redeems and uses to carry out his purpose and, and, and bring out his glory. You know, if you read the story carefully, one of the things that you'll notice is that early on, there's a sense of arrogance in Joseph. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're favored amongst your siblings, you can't help but become filled with a little bit of pride and a little bit of arrogance and kind of have an air of superior, superiority and I'm better than you are. And I'm sure that, that he carried that with him and, and when he wore that coat and when he you know, gave the dreams that he had. And I, and I can understand how that would irritate his brothers. And, the, and then the brothers, I mean, look, look at them. They become so upset that they're actually murderous toward Joseph. I mean, how, how evil can the heart be? But then we go back, we know what Cain did to Abel. And Jacob is, you know, fostering all of that going on in their lives. Let's talk about you and me for a moment. Maybe you've had great parents. Maybe you haven't had such great parents. But it doesn't matter. You and I, we're sinful human beings. And we are bullied by the environment that we're in. We're bullied by our peers. We're bullied by strangers. We're bullied by the media. We're bullied by social media. We're, you know, we are constantly treated in one way or another with some degree of unfairness. And it, and it has an effect on our lives. And it makes us angry or, or selfish or bitter or arrogant or proud or mischievous or sensual. And you, know, you can list all the ways that this world corrupts us and eggs on our, our sinful nature. And so how does God work with us? How does God help us through that? Well, I saw something in the passage that uh, as I was studying, I never really realized before, and it really spoke to my heart. I want to share it with you. And it just came by way of other Bible teachers that, you know, have spent time in the passages I read and, and study and see what they have to say. So this is not like this thing I came up with, I can take credit for. But there's this, well, I'll just show you. Look what happens in the text, all right? God intervenes to become the father that these boys never had. And that was like a aha for me. 
And it's right. You look at that story, that is so true. God intervenes in Joseph's life to become the father that Joseph really needed to have, a father who loved him, but a father who would discipline him. And so God allows Joseph to go through all those difficult experiences to break Joseph, to humble Joseph, to prepare Joseph to be a humble yet wise and godly mature leader for Pharaoh and then for his family. And you see, and we'll see it a little bit more in a, in a few minutes, you see how God then even steps in and through Joseph parents the brothers and disciplines them and prepares them to be the founders of the, the nation Israel and particularly Judah who will be the founder of the messianic line from which Jesus comes. And the same thing is true in your life and my life. None of us have perfect parents. We already know we're sinful creatures. We know we live in a sinful environment. And we also need God to step into our lives to help us in all the areas that we are lacking in. Or to put it this way, if you and I will allow God, he will become all that we are lacking in our lives. And we all know we're lacking in so many areas of our lives. So God wants to step in and he wants to be the father behind all fathers. And he makes up for where we fail each other because he never fails us. And that begs the question, well then how does God, how does God do that? And there's a wonderful passage in the New Testament that just makes a whole lot of sense when you've read the story of Joseph. It's found in the book of Hebrews and it goes like this. And I want you to notice how many times we're going to see the word discipline in the passage. It's in uh, Hebrews. It says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes each one he accepts as his child. So we got this father-child thing going on here, don't we? As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is, and there's the word again, who is never disciplined by its father? Goes on. If God doesn't discipline you, here we go again, as he does all of his children, means that you're illegitimate and are not really his children at all since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits? I love that phrase, father of our spirits. God is the father of my spirit. He's the father of your spirit. Think of him that way. And live forever. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. And you might want to just read this again over in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 10 and kind of meditate on it. I think I counted almost eight different times that the word discipline is used here. And this word actually comes from a Greek word, Greek word, pedia, from which we get the term pediatrician, pediatrician. You know, a pediatrician is a doctor who specializes uh, 
taking care of the health of young people, of, of children. And in a sense, they're, they're responsible for the overall uh, healthy maturation physically and emotionally of the child in conjunction, obviously, with the parents. Pediatricians are important. And what God is saying is that he's our fatherly pediatrician. He's concerned about our whole life, our whole spiritual maturity. He's there to help us mature and grow. Now, when we talk about being disciplined, when you hear a word like punish in the Bible, don't think of it as, as retribution or revenge. When God disciplines, it's out of love. God allows unpleasantness to come into our lives to move us away from all of the vices of this world that we are so easily tempted by because of our own sinful nature. Take, for instance, lying. Every one of us has lied. And everyone who's ever been a parent knows that that's one of the issues you have to deal with pretty early on with your kids. It just comes naturally to them to want to lie. And you create unpleasantness, all right, when they lie for them, you make it kind of painful for them to lie, lose privileges or whatever it's going to be. Because you know if you don't discipline them and you allow them to lie, they're going to grow up to be liars and it's going to destroy their lives and it's going to destroy the lives of others. God says, I bring discipline into your life because I want to help mature you. I, I want to shape you. I want to get you to that place where you're walking in the light, where you're walking in the truth for your own good and also for my glory. And so uh, as, as we think about that, it, it brings to mind a, um, a formula I came up with, all right? Now, it's not, the formula is something I came up with, but I'm borrowing from some things that Tim Keller uh, wrote, but I, I kind of put it in a different way. And this is how God works. This is how he's working in, the, this is how he worked in Joseph's life. This is how he works in the Bible. It's how he works today in our lives as well. God has a way of taking external brokenness in the world, okay, XB, all right, and using it in relationship with our internal brokenness that we have in our own lives to create what I will call dependence on God which then yields what I'm going to call fruit in our lives. And that fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, which ultimately is a reflection of the image of Christ. That's how God works. So God takes the external brokenness of the world that we live in, he will bring that into relationship with our internal brokenness in order to get us to depend on God, to look to God. And when we do that, bears love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which is really the picture of who Jesus is. I love this illustration. I don't know where I read it. I came across it, and I liked it. And it goes something like this. God has the ability to take a stick that's warped, all right, and still make a clean, straight shot. I don't know. I don't know if that applies to hockey or not. I'm not a hockey player, but it kind of makes sense, right? God can take a, a stick that's, that's warped, that's not straight, 
that's twisted and turned and still get a straight shot out of it because of how he uses it in our lives, what he wants to bring about in our hearts, in our lives. And we see God doing this in Joseph's life, in David's life, in Peter's life. I mean, you see it all over the scripture. In fact, it brings greater insight to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 when he said, we know that God causes everything, that's that external brokenness, coming in relationship with our internal brokenness, to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. Now, listen to me for a moment. A lot of times we read a verse like this, we think externally, we think outside of ourselves, and we go, okay, well, uh, let me look out here. What is God doing? I, I need to see something external happening. I'm going through this suffering. I'm going through this challenge right now in my life. So what's God doing out here? Understand, it's, it's not always what God's going to do outside of you in somebody else's life or in some situation. The place we need to look is inside of us. Because ultimately, this is about God creating the image of his son in us, not so much what God is doing outside of us. God is doing something inside of Joseph first before God will do anything outside. And God's wanting to do something inside your life right now before he does anything outwardly speaking. Outwardly speaking. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let me ask you this question. How is whatever you're going through right now making you more like Jesus? Ask yourself this question. Whatever this is in your life, how is this making me more like Jesus? How is this injustice you're experiencing right now in your life making you more like Christ? How is this cancer making you more like Christ? How is this loss of a job making you more like Christ? How is this relational friction making you more like Christ? How is this culture we're living in making you more like Christ? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. How's God using this in my life to discipline me, to teach me patience or to teach me love or to teach me long-suffering or whatever that fruit is that he's trying to bring out of my life? Will I allow him to use it that way in my life? And you know, when I think this way, when I realize that all the stuff that's happening in my life, God's using to create the image of his son in my life, you know what it does for me? It takes away my need to have vengeance when I'm mistreated. I don't have to deal with that. Besides, the Bible says vengeance belongs to God anyway. When I realize that God's using all this stuff to create something in me, I don't have to get angry. I don't have to get even. We see that in Joseph's life. Can you imagine how angry he could have been? How vengeful he could have been with his brothers? Or maybe even later with his father realizing, Dad, you made this all happen? Or toward the Egyptians? You never see that. Because he knows that God's doing something in him. It also... It also then allows me to surrender control to God. It allows me to surrender control to God. I don't have to be, I don't have to be in control anymore. Because God cares. God's doing something. And I don't have to worry about that anymore. God is at work. You know, as we talk about this whole concept of, of discipline, I'll remind you what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, another Hebrew uh, passage in the book of Hebrews says, even though Jesus was God's son, so Jesus is perfect, no sin in him at all, okay? So it says, look, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. 
He too had to go through that discipline. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Wow. I mean, even Jesus learned in his humanity to submit and depend on the Father when he was being tempted or when he was being persecuted and threatened. If it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will, Father. Your will be done in me. So Jesus sets the example for us of how we are to respond when we go through difficulties as well. Now, I want to I dig into this a little deeper. There's a commentator by the name of Derek Kidner, and he's got a, I've got several of his commentaries. He's got one on Genesis. I was reminded of that recently. And I want you, I just want you to hear what he says about this passage. It's, it's not easy, but there's a word image in it that I want, I want you to wrap your minds around. He says, Joseph's unusual treatment of his brothers was a kinder and more searching test. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of new attitudes in the brothers. As the alternating, here's the phrase, as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. What Kinder's doing here, he's saying, look, when you first read how Joseph treats his brothers, you feel like he's toying with them. You almost feel like he's being vengeful, that he's messing with them. But he says he's not. He says, actually, he's, being, he's doing something very important for them. He's breaking them to bring them to a point where they can be used. And I love this illustration of sun and frost, of hot and cold, of, of heat, right, and, and cold. I mean, we live, those of you who live in the Midwest, like here in Minnesota, we understand that. We know what heat and cold does to our roads, right? Breaks them up. Well, God is doing the same thing in discipline. He uses heat and cold. He uses the difficult as well as the great experiences to kind of break us, to, to mold us, to, to shape us. Look at Joseph's life for a moment. Look at the hot and cold. Look at the, the sun and the frost in his life. I mean, he goes from being favorite son to in the pit, to favorite servant to in a prison, to favorite prisoner to finally, to forgotten prisoner, and then finally to the vizier, the prime minister. Joseph takes that same thing in his own life and applies it to his brother's life. The brothers come to Egypt. He throws them in jail. He brings them out of jail. He sends them home with full sacks, but keeps one. They bring Benjamin back. He releases Simeon out of jail. Sends them on their way with full sacks. Plants a silver cup. Brings them back. Accuses them of stealing. Now they're all fearful. What's going to happen to us? And Judah steps up and says, look, just, just you know, keep me and send my brother home. It will break my father's heart. And you see these guys. I mean, they're like being... They're just, you know, up one moment and down the next moment. What is Joseph doing? He's being a father to them. He's breaking them. He's humbling them. He's getting them to a place where there is authenticity in their lives, where there can be some exchange of, a, of emotion and repentance and realization in their life, just like God does in your life and my life. Another way of, of looking at this is saying what we're dealing with here is truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. You know, sometimes truth is harsh. Sometimes truth is, is hot. Sometimes it, it's, it's fierce. 
Love, though, is passionate. Love is soft. Love is compassion. And we should always speak the truth in love, we say. That's the gospel. The gospel is like sun and frost. The gospel hurts us, then heals us. The gospel reminds us that we're sinners and that the wages of sin is death. But then the gospel comes along and tells us there's hope, there's redemption, there's forgiveness, there's mercy. God uses the gospel like that in our lives because God is always trying to bring us to a place where he can truly do something great in our lives. And the great thing that he does in our lives, if you're wondering what that is, is the production of the image of his son in our lives, in your life and in my life. Now, I'm sure all of you know that this is, this is, uh, this is Palm Sunday. And you're probably wondering to yourself, what does this message have to do with Palm Sunday? I mean, I was expecting that passage of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Well, this story, this message has everything to do with Palm Sunday. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, think about this. Before Joseph revealed himself, it required that Judah offer himself as a substitute for his younger brother, Benjamin. That is, when Judah said, take my life for the boy's life, that's when Joseph revealed himself and forgave his brothers. Jesus is from physically, humanly, is from the lineage of Judah. When Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, he offers himself as a substitute for you and for me. And when he does that, the Father reveals his grace and his forgiveness. This whole story, Joseph and his brothers, is such a beautiful picture of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though mistreated, mishandled, wrongly accused, opened his arms up in loving forgiveness as he made himself a substitute, a sacrifice for you and for me. And this coming Good Friday, we're going to talk about that, what Jesus did on the cross for us so we can have the hope of eternal life. But when we began this series, the thing I said to you, and I'll remind you again, is that now that you're a follower of Jesus, he wants to make you a rescuer. He wants to make you a small s savior to this world. As you and I offer ourselves as living sacrifices that others might come to know the hope and the faith and the love that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. What's God doing in your life this weekend? What are the things that he's using in your life to press you, to mold you, to shape you, to become the woman, the man, or the young person he wants you to be, to bring out of you the greatness of his son's image so you can be a redemptive force in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Lord, how we all want to be like Joseph. How we all want to learn to depend on you, let you mold us, let you shape us. Really, Lord, we all want to be like Jesus. 
And so I pray, O oh God, that this weekend you would take this message and apply it to our hearts and our minds and bring Christ out of us as we learn to depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and I'll see you good Friday.